Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his news-making interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. is new every Thursday via podcast1.com and of course Apple Podcast. Hope your 2020 is off to a great start and I appreciate you making the Eddie Trunk podcast a part of it. Of course, as I always remind you guys, the interviews you hear on this podcast every week originated on my Sirius XM show Trunk Nation, a live rock talk show which airs Monday through Friday 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time live on Sirius XM, channel 106 volume, and replays every night, 10 to midnight Eastern, and is also on demand in its entirety on the Sirius XM app. If you live in the U.S. or Canada, hope you come on board if you are not already and listen to me each and every day on Sirius XM volume, talking rock with you. So it is, uh, as usually is the case, kind of getting worked into the new year here, Fairly quiet, you know, the music industry shuts down for the most part in December and really doesn't ramp up until around mid to late January. One of the big benchmark things that really kicks it into gear is the start of the NAM show, which is actually happening this coming weekend in Anaheim, California. I'm sorry, next week, next weekend in Anaheim, California. And it is a huge gathering of music merchandisers and merchants and people who make guitars and amps and pedals and keyboards and drums and tons of musicians go there, tons of parties, tons of event of events around it. I've gone to it the last few years and I'll be out there a little bit this year, although not too much time in the actual NAM event end of things. I'm going to be hosting the Heavy Metal Awards show which is happening on the 15th in Anaheim. And I look forward to doing that. That's at the Delta Hotel. And Steve Vai, Joe Satriani, a lot of cool artists are going to be there. And also hosting part of the Montrose Remembered Tribute Concert, which will be at a venue called M3 a week from Friday. 
and I'll be there for a little bit as well. Outside of that, on the 16th, which is a week from today, if you're listening on post day, I'll be in West Hollywood, California, where I will be hosting the first Trunk Nation LA Invasion, which is my rainbow broadcast of 2020. And I'll be doing that on the 16th from the patio at the rainbow as usual. As usual, it's totally free to attend if you're in Southern California. And we'll start at 7 p.m. Pacific time. It'll be live on Sirius XM volume. And my guest is going to be none other than Joe Satriani joining me. Going to be great to have the iconic guitarist sitting in for an L.A. invasion. And we'll have some other guests as well. Maybe get you guys on the air. It's always a fun time hanging at the Rainbow. And hope to see you guys there if you are around in the L.A. area on the 16th, a week from today, for the latest Trunk Nation L.A. Invasion broadcast. You can hear all the action happen on Volume Channel 106, both live and the following day in my normal air times of the radio show. So a lot of stuff going on, the NAM stuff, L.A. Invasion stuff, and then before you know it, Monsters of Rock Cruise is here, which I also broadcast from February 22nd. I'm in Tulsa at the IDL Ballroom hosting a show with Buck Cherry. Coming up in January, I'm going to be in Virginia, and I will be in Thornburg, Virginia, on January 26th, hosting a show with Firehouse for a charity event. All this information is all on my website if you'd like to have a look and keep up with everything I got going on and where I'm going to be. Also, uh, there's other stuff going on. Erlanger, Kentucky, I'm going to be there on February 29th, just outside of Cincinnati for a speaking show. That is also something that's rescheduled from earlier. Just keep an eye on eddytrunk.com. You know, as I'm talking to you here, I'm actually going to go to my website because I want to make sure that this stuff is up there. And sometimes I forget things myself, and it's a good way for me to keep up with what the hell I got going on. So I'm just actually pulling up my site right now and checking to make sure... Yeah, looks like it's pretty much up to speed the way things should be. All right. So a lot of other stuff going on, and uh, look forward to seeing all you guys out and about. And be sure to follow on Twitter, at Eddie Trunk, for up-to-the-second news, info, and updates. So this week on the podcast, I'm going to bring you an interview with a guy I used to work for. He is the founder of Megaforce Records, John Zazula, better known as Johnny Z. And he recently released a book called Heavy Tales. Johnny Z was behind so much in the world of metal music in the early 80s. He was the first to release a full-length album from Metallica, involved with so much metal from Anthrax to Testament to Overkill I got involved in his company in 86 and worked there till 1990, working with acts like Ace Freely, Icon, Prophet, King's X, and many others. And I am definitely was a part of that story. It's a big part of my story and my history. Uh, Johnny, of course, is the founder of the company, and he was uh, you know, running the whole deal. And he wrote his first book chronicling what it was like and how he managed to become this guy that was a pioneer in bringing heavy metal music to the world in a, in a whole new genre of metal with the birth of thrash back in the early 80s. 
It's a great read. And before it came out, Johnny came by my Sirius XM show to talk a little bit about the book and his history and our history together. And it's a fun conversation I think you'll enjoy. So we get a little bit inside here on some of the stories and the history of some of the bands that you know so well from a man who was very instrumental in bringing them to the world, Johnny Z, Johnny Zazula, uh, talking about his book, Heavy Tales, and much, much more. I think you're going to enjoy it. You guys always seem to like when we go to the business side of things a little bit as well, along with the artists themselves. And this time we will go to that business side and talk a little bit about the history of Megaforce Records with its founder, Johnny Z. That's what we got for you on this week's Eddie Trunk podcast. Remember, at Eddie Trunk Twitter, Instagram, fan page on Facebook, eddietrunk.com is the official online home. Be sure to check it out and keep up with everything I have going on as we are now full steam ahead into a new year and a lot of stuff cooking and a lot of stuff to be announced. And great to be bringing you a podcast every Thursday as well. Thank you for listening, subscribing, downloading, streaming, whatever the hell you do, however the hell you get it, thank you for doing so. We'll be right back and talk to Johnny Z next on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. Hey, if you love true crime podcasts, Podcast One is the perfect destination. We've got two awesome true crime podcasts trending right now, and you have to check them out. First up, based on the iconic series on A&E, Cold Case Files, that explores some of the most difficult-to-solve murders which stymied investigators and went cold, sometimes for decades. Next up, Copycat Killers is the latest podcast from Reels, and Podcast One, every episode takes you behind the scenes of real-life murder cases which copy memorable slaying seen in Hollywood movies. Check out both Cold Case Files and Copycat Killers. They're going to be your next favorite true crime podcast. And be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and many of your favorite podcast listening apps. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. All right, this week on the Eddie Trunk Podcast, my old boss, Johnny Z, talking about our days together and his days founding Megaforce Records, a label with a tremendous amount of metal history, and of course, talking about his new book, which has recently been released as well. So here you go, conversation with John Zazula. Enjoy. My old boss, ladies and gentlemen, there he is, right in front of me, looking great, by the way. Johnny Z, how are you, my friend? I'm fine, Ed. How I, are you? I was just saying, you look great, man. You dropped like 60-something pounds. 67 pounds, yeah. And you said the old, the way you did it was you cut in my, half everything you ate. That's right. That's all you did, really? I still eat ice cream. I still eat cookies. Just I don't drink soda. No soda, no bread. What was the biggest vice for you as far as food? What was the What's the hardest thing? A Sweets? Pint, a pint of ice cream every night and a bag oh, of pretzels. Do. Oh, the ice cream will get you. You were doing a pint a night, huh? A pint a night, sometimes uh, close to a half gallon. I'm so addicted <laughs> to ice cream, man. Give me a brand and a flavor. What's the brand and flavor? Uh, butter pecan. Sorry, it's as boring as that. Yeah, and it's right. Haagen-Dazs. Haagen-Dazs is the one. Let me tell you something. I don't want to set you off the rails, and we're going to talk about your book. but And I shouldn't be eating any of this stuff either, but every once in a while I do. The Greatest Vanilla Ice Cream. 
I ever had mm-hmm. is Costco brand Kirkland. Really? If you have, I'm a Costco freak, and yes. I'm not saying this for advertising purposes. They don't advertise, folks. There's no no back end on me saying this. Kirkland, which is the Costco brand, mm-hmm. their brand of vanilla ice cream, it'll blow your mind. Well, I'll check it out. It's I love really, vanilla. really good. All right, Johnny. Thanks yes, for coming sir. in. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. So I am really excited because Johnny has written his autobiography. It's called Heavy Tales, The Metal, The Music, The Madness, as lived by John Zazula. Great cover, uh, cover photo. Tell me about that. That's a Gene Ambo photo. I believe it was taken at the Ritz at the fifth anniversary party for Megaforce Records. Yeah. I was there. Oh, yeah. You, you sure remember, were. Do you remember that story? I think you were very drunk, weren't you? <laughs> yeah. I think they had to carry it out yes, for some reason. My vice president is getting carried out as I walk into the place. I said, I'm going to have a lot of help from Ed tonight. Did, uh, see, you do remember that one. You, I, I was, I'll never forget it because we and, – and Metal Maria is here as well, we should mention. Now, Maria is a publicist and was even a publicist then. Maria was the only person – at Megaforce before I got there back in the day. And the thing that I remember about that fifth anniversary party, what happened with me was we all got there kind of early. Everybody was doing their sound checks, getting ready. Mm -hmm. And it was a very celebratory thing. Five years of the label. We were all having a great time. Everybody was excited for the evening. And every artist I saw of the bands that played that night, hey, get over, let's do a shot. Come on, let's celebrate. Let's do a shot. And I said yes to everyone. I bet. And I hadn't eaten. And then by the time showtime hit, it all hit me, and I was done, passed out, right. shot outside it, of the outside of the Ritz. You were a real letdown, Ed. And I never. <laughs> and John, you know, because you having worked with you, that was never me. I you never were straight did that. laced, right? <laughs> and that's why you got drunk. You were straight laced. <laughs> so that one night, everybody. I and mean, I've seen pictures of like from that night with Bobby Gustafson has got his arm around me from Overkill, and you could see our eyes are going in two different directions. Oh, yeah. It was quite a night, but that was. That was the fifth year anniversary of Megaforce. There's so much to talk about before that and after that. But before we do, let me ask you about the book. Why now did you decide to tell your story? Well, I retired officially from the business Mm -hmm. at age 66 in June of 2018. Okay. And I'm sitting around, bored as can be, and I'm just thinking maybe this is the time to get the story told the right way and tell it the way it happened. Mm Mm-hmm. I figured I'll do it. My biggest thing that held me back was I couldn't remember anything. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't remember my timeline. I didn't know what to do. So I found a fellow named Harold Claros Maldonado who came in and he researched my life for me. He put a timeline together and I told the stories that pertain to every item in the timeline and the most interesting stories and tales we put in the book. It's pretty much my story telling you my story written by me but there are harold maldonado kept me on the path and uh, we managed to finish the book it took a year and three months to finish the book and then we took about three months to edit it believe it or not because i kept on sending it back because it didn't sound like me Mm. so i had to write the book again a second time you wanted to make sure it was your voice it's my voice in fact i attempted to do an audio tape which I'm still working on because I did it real renegade. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the book sounds like me telling the story on the audio tape. And that's Mm -hmm. the way I wanted it, like a tale. 
Well, I know that that's how it worked because when you were writing it, you called me a few times. And oh, yeah. <laughs> we had a couple conversations. And one time you called me with him on the phone and you guys sort of interviewed me on the phone that's right. for some stuff in here. And I remember when after we had our first conversation while you were doing the book, you, you say to me, Oh shit, Ed! I don't even remember this stuff. Like I and and then when I told you the story about you and I with Metallica and how I first played the record and you wrote on the cover and all that, I had the record sitting right next to me with your handwriting. You know, unbelievable. The, the, so 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 I. But look, I understand forgetting stuff because Rick Ocasek from the Cars died yesterday. Yes. I was talking about that at the beginning of the show, and I'm on the air earlier today telling my audience I never met the guy. Wish I did. Five minutes later, I got a phone call from somebody who said, Ed, you interviewed him for an hour on VH1 in 2005. Here's the link to the video. I'm like, Jesus, I got a picture of him right on my wall, me and oh him. And my I'm like, God. I never interviewed Rick Ocasek. So you, it is easy to forget stuff when the years go by so fast like they do. Oh, yeah. And what blew my mind was the discography. When I had to do the discography at the end of the book, yeah. you look at it, it's almost impossible to achieve. Yeah. All those classic great albums, one after another, sometimes six or seven coming out in a year. Like, what were we thinking? Yeah. How hard did we work, Ed? Yeah. You know, what a team of people we had at Megaforce in those days. Yeah. And the fact that they're all classic records today really says something, right? It really does. I think there's like 63 albums in like five minutes. Yeah. And they all worked out. Some of them didn't. I talk in the book about the fact we made some big mistakes, mm -hmm. some big errors, but we batted 500, like I say. And Which, by, by record company standards, is a pretty good batting average. With grand slams all over the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And talk about working hard. I mean, see, this is, folks, for me, this is a unique situation because for a good four years of, of the, the, the core history of this, I worked for John and with John and Maria. And I was there. I remember the first day in your house in Old Bridge. I remember the whole thing. So when you say this stuff, it really resonates with me because we all did work really hard. I we remember did. for like, I remember starting when I first started working out of your house. And the thing about that was for you and Marsha, was the fact that because we were working out of your house, most people leave the office and they leave work behind. The office and where you lived was one and the same. We so lived there. if if I left to go drive home at five, six o'clock, you it wouldn't be uncommon for you to call me at eight thirty at night and be like, Hey, I'm still here. I gotta ask you about something. It was almost twenty four seven for you guys because the house and the office were one and the same. Yes, we stayed up about twenty four hours a day for about five years. Yeah. <laughs> it was uh, a huge workload, but it didn't seem like that because there was a metal revolution going on. It felt like at the time we were really changing the face and course of heavy metal. And then Ed, uh, you'd come over to me and say, "Hey, let's sign Ace Freely," <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that uh, gave us a lot of credibility with the major labels. But it was a big risk, I remember, the, the story with Ace, because, and I remember when I brought Ace, the idea of Ace to you, you had said to me, because I, I was, and everyone knows, a huge Kiss fan, mm -hmm. but you were not. So you were like, I don't know that world, you know, you got to, you know, of course you knew who Kiss was, but I was like, John, nobody's really even seen him without the makeup, we should find him, and then we had that lunch 
in New York right. with Eddie Kramer, I think, orchestrated that, or I'm not sure who orchestrated that. Yes, he did. That. I think yes, Eddie he was did. there. Right. And then we had that lunch, and then, but it was a risk because at that time, Ace was considered to be somebody that could so easily go off the rails and burn you because driving the DeLorean the wrong way down right the highway on. and all that right. stuff. But we were, and you, at the end of the day, it was your call, we're smart enough to say, yeah, we'll take it on, we'll give it a shot. Ace was in great shape. Yeah. Ace. First album. Yeah, the first Second album. Second album, no. First album, yeah. Whatever it was, everything was focused on the first album. Yeah. I don't know how many we ended up selling, but we almost went gold yeah. with it. And uh, Ace turned out for a long time to be on the straight and narrow and doing what he had to do. And when he's straight, he's an amazing, amazing man. Um, I have to tell you that once things started changing, I didn't have that much to do with the Ace Freely projects. It was basically you, Ed. Mm. That had to work with it and deal with it. Yeah. You know, but uh, still in all, when Ace came to us, he was perfect shape. Yeah, he was. Let's let's go back to the start here. So I first got to know you because I was a customer at your store, Rock right. and Roll Heaven. And that's where a lot of people knew you, even before you started Megaforce. Uh, John had a store with Marsha where he would sell imports and rarities and all that. The origins of the store, because it was in a flea market initially, how did that come about? And these stories are in your book, but I want you to give people a little tease. Well, I was on the balls of my ass and could barely feed my family. And Marsha's father would spend about $70 on the average grocery shopping, so we had some food to feed my family because we were really... Poor, actually. We weren't in a good economic place. And I tried to sell some of my records to some dealer in the flea market, and he bought them. And it, uh, he gave me the first $150 I had to invest towards records. I was thinking already if I sell my records, I could buy new records and turn those records into profit. And maybe at the end of the weekend, I could make $70 and not have to rely on Marsha's father to feed my family. What year are we talking? 1982 it started. Okay. And I opened up the store. We sat there, Marsha and I, for hours on end, and nobody walked in. We thought we made the greatest mistake in our life. Mm. But towards the end of the day, people started buying records from us, and we had a pretty decent day. And from that day... Every day turned out to be a, a a wonderful day at Megaforce to the point that in seven months we had about sixty thousand dollars in inventory. Rock and roll heaven. This Rock and roll heaven. Megaforce, Excuse yeah. me. I'm right. sorry. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. Rock and roll heaven had about sixty thousand dollars in inventory from reinvesting, 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 reinvesting. The truth of the matter is we stopped <laughs> and we never ate the seventy dollars. We ate seventy dollars worth of vinyl and. Uh, we ate at the flea market whenever we could with money from the draw, you know, but uh, that's the way it started. It started in a flea market. Metallica tape was heard in a flea market. Yeah, we should, we should, um, so so this is all going on in New Jersey, and right. I lived about an hour from where this was going on, but if you were a metal fan back then, as I was a kid in high school, you knew about Rock and Roll Heaven, mm-hmm. you knew Johnny, you knew that when you went to that store, 
you would discover things or find things you wouldn't see anywhere else. You wouldn't else. see anywhere else. We had everything. And whether even magazines. I remember going to get Kerrang! or, or whatever. Metal Hammer, Metal Odd Hammer. Shock, Enter. Yeah, yeah. You'd have the British magazines. You'd have all this cool stuff. And the biggest thing was is you were a guy that when you went there, if basically it got to the point, at least for me as a customer, before I even worked for you, that if you said this is something good, you should check it out, even if you never heard of it, Johnny's given it his stamp. We got to check it out. Right. And that, that was really, to me, a very important thing that you cultivated was that sort of loyalty from the audience, from the, the customers to know, hey, you're going to really just deal with stuff that you were passionate about, that you thought was cool stuff, and that you thought people were going to like. We had to use our skills as listeners to music. Because you didn't probably have the overhead to bring it all in, right? What I did between you and me, Ed... And the audience listening. And the audience listening. <laughs> Here it is. We took one record of everything that came out. We bought everything that came out. I listened to it and then chose what I was going to buy 10, 15, and 200 of. And for instance, Michael Shanker came out with an album live at Budokan. Mm -hmm. I warned everybody it was going to happen and I got an advance. I knew how great it was. And the day it came out in Germany, we had it two days later on that Friday at Rock and Roll Heaven. It was my record sales, uh, Be Twisted Sister, which sold 200 records out of my store in one weekend. Mm. But I sold 250 except Restless and Wild. Boxes and boxes and boxes I sold out of my store. Oh, and of course, Michael Shanker <laughs> live at Budokan. It was just amazing how much vinyl moved out. Now, one of the great rock and roll heaven stories is that it's a sad story, but when Randy Rhodes died, there was hundreds of people in the flea market coming to rock and roll heaven to mourn and discuss his death mm -hmm. and say, who's next? What are we going to do? How are we going to live without Randy Rhodes? It was really intense. And people came from 500 miles away mm. to rock and roll heaven just to feel it. And when you walked in it, you really felt you were yeah. in heaven. Yeah, well, it was a. Th this is something to me that has, and this is a great credit to you, but you create sort of like, you always created sort of a family environment. Like, I remember just the other people I'd see at Rock and Roll Heaven. We became this community. Right. You were the leader of it because it was your store with Marsha. But we became this community of people we'd see, we'd meet there. We'd This is way before the internet and cell phones and all this stuff where you could talk and swap stories and get insights and check this out. So you were kind of like our guy for that. And what's interesting is when you started Megaforce, that continued because there was a point where people would buy records based on the fact that they were on Megaforce right. in the early years because they knew seeing that logo meant, okay, this is we're part of this thing. When we were at Atlantic, the president of Atlantic came up to me and says, John, if a band's on Megaforce Records, we will sell 47,000 units. Yeah. <laughs> before, Built the, in brand before the people even listen to the record. Yeah. Um, then it was the big climb, the hard climb from 47 up where you had to really sell the world on these bands. But in time, everybody did well. You obviously are most known for Metallica mm -hmm. and obviously finding Metallica and putting out the first two records. Right. And 
you know, we could do hours on Metallica, I'm sure. But tell that story. Tell everybody how Metallica came on your radar and a band that was West Coast based ended up putting a lot of roots in New Jersey, getting embraced by a lot of people in New Jersey, the metal militia, all those guys, everything that went on there. And of course, now the interesting thing about Metallica is they had actually released a song on Metal Blade with Slagle right. before you actually did a full record. Right. I've talked to Brian about that a lot of times. He said, I was a kid. I didn't have the resources to do a record with them. I, I was friends with Lars. I got one song on a compilation. But you were the guy that put out Kill 'Em All. And, I had to. And and tell me how that all, tell the audience how that all went down. Well, I became very close with the band and we all discussed putting out an album. Close because were they sending you their cassette? No, close because they were living in my house. <laughs> but how did that get to that point? Well, someone came to my record store, my yeah. little shop. And I didn't play demo tapes until I heard them and I would play them because I okayed them, like my records, for the buying people, for the consumers. Right. But this guy was really insistent. He said, Johnny, you got to do this. And the store wasn't crowded. So I put it on, put it on low. And then all of a sudden it was raging and people were complaining about the volume in the store. But the whole bottom, the whole bottom line is I went crazy over the demo tape. I did listen to it. I went into my drawer where I had my cash, took out some change, went to a pay phone because we didn't have cell phones in those days. Right. I called a number on the back of a tape, KJ Dorton. KJ put Journalist, me, right? A journalist, a writer. Right. Later, leader of the Metallica fan club. And KJ put me in touch with Laws. Laws called me. I told him what I wanted to do with 12 shows on the Northeast. Venom, Twisted Sister among them. And I said, come on out. And he asked me to send money. I sent him some money, blindly, just trustingly. Next thing you know it, they arrive on my front lawn <laughs> with a U-Haul truck and an old Chevy. And, and this is with James, Mustaine, and Cliff at that point, right? James, Dave, Cliff, and Laws. Right. And they had a Mark Whitaker who was there sort of like, uh, sound man, tour manager guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went, when the time came to put out the record, to every label. I got into every label and I could get to, well, many. And they didn't understand what I was playing for them. So at this point, you were basically sort of repping them as an A&R guy. Were you, were you, did you want to start a record label? No as way. Or you were just trying to find them a home? Look. On the label side. We had no money. We were broke. I was on the balls of my ass. Who in their right mind would start a record company under those conditions? <laughs> That's what the story was. And it was me. And what happened was Metallica basically had to uh, put out a record. There was nowhere to go. And Marsha and I spoke. And we figured if we didn't send our distributor money for records, <laughs> we just put it into a studio and let them come after us we could maybe take them in the studio and record an album. And when we got in the studio, we needed even more money. So I put a mortgage on my house. And the same day I put the mortgage on my house, I put another mortgage on my house because it said, you, did you get approved for any mortgage? I said, no, I didn't get approved. Then the same day I got approved for two. So all of a sudden I had the money to pay for the Metallica recording in the studio. And we did the album and then I had to put it out. 
and I needed money to manufacture records. Right. And I had to go find that. Right. And then they would tour, and they'd only make X amount of money. So I had to support that, and I found all that money. So maybe people said, where am I going to get the money? I just said it's going to come somehow. Now, I had extreme faith, you know, not at the time in God. I bring it up. But I believe I was a pawn in a game. I write that in the book. Yeah. Between Marsha and God, I was just pushed to go, 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 go. Plus, I'm a manic depressive, and my mania was so insane. That means you just have a drive. I never got depressed. I just went crazy. And that's how all this happened. Just the madness ensued. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing when you think about it. And I want to ask you, what did, what were your impressions when you first met those four guys in Metallica? Uh, were they uh, what what were they like? They're kids, no success, no money. They're kids. Were they were they out of their minds? Were they mellow? What were they like? Well, Lars was grounded. Dave was on his own. James was quiet. And Cliff was a normal, wonderful guy to talk to and the heart of the band, sort of. And when they came and they drank out my wagon full of booze <laughs> right in front of me, and they said, come on, let's go to the store. And they went to the store and this and that. I thought, oh, my God, what did I get myself into here? These, They're living in your house. Living, they were real. <laughs> well, that didn't last forever. You know, we had the Old Bridge Militia and the right. Fun House and all that where right. they lived. But it was, uh, let's just leave it, it was, a, it was a crazy time, Ed. Just leave it at that. I'm, ju- I'm jumping around here a little bit just in the interest of time, but one thing that you write in the book that really struck me about your history with Metallica was that we all know Kill 'Em All comes out, game changer in every way. You had said that for Kill 'Em All and the recording of that record, you were intensely involved. You were there every step of the way. You were really managing it as best you could in every way you were physically there i was there as much as i could be right when the second album when ride the lightning came around that album they did outside of the u.s never there and you were never there and you were not as connected to the making of that record and you say in the book that you felt that was a big mistake by you because you felt that that disconnect caused maybe what inevitably came afterwards when the band left you and went on right label in the time that they recorded Ride the Lightning. They had time to think and process things and realize that this album is out on Megaforce again. You know, maybe it'll sell 40,000, 50,000, who knows. I thought those weren't bad numbers, by the way, in those days, because nobody sold that indie. And you're talking about a band that at that point, everybody knows Metallica now, but at that point, zero commercial radio play, like big no, mainstream play. No anything, no radio, Special no Special metal videos. shows, like what, what I was doing and they were doing on the West Coast, that's about it. That's about it. There was about six radio shows in the country at the time between right. college and mainstream syndicated or whatever. And they shows usually ran from 11 to 1 or 12 to right, 2. I know. <laughs> you know, you'd see Ed in this little house in the wee hours of the night playing all this heavy metal. Yeah. You know, speaking of that, I don't know if you know the story about that, but I came up in the rain. I drove an hour and a half yeah. to Ed Trunk's radio show. I knock on the door. He opens up the door and he sees me. He goes, guy what from the, the flea market. He goes, what the fuck are you doing It's the guy from the flea market doing here with a bag under his arm. I had a bag under my arm. And in that bag was Jump in the Fire. Yeah, I still have it. And I said, I'd like you to play this on the radio tonight. 
And Ed is giving me this hard time, Johnny, I haven't heard it. I'm not going to. But and I'm a kid. I'm a year into doing radio. I don't even know what I barely know what I'm doing. I'm on a commercial station. I grew up. I was like, what is it? Like the, I didn't know what to, I was like out of my mind. I'm like, what are you doing? You got to leave, leave it. I'll listen to it. You were, but you were insistent and you got your way. I was insistent. I got my way. And Ed was the first person in the country, by the way, maybe the world to play whiplash. Oh, excuse me. Jump in the the fire. fire, Yeah. On, on the radio, and I, I signed it to Ed. You were the I first. still have it. I got the re- I got the jump in the fire, and, and it's Johnny John Roden Penn. Ed, you were the first. Thanks, John Z. And then when you walked out the door, you're like, if I can ever get this band to take off and get this label, I'm going to hire you one day. Yeah, sure, get out of here. Like, that's ever going to happen. Rest is history, man. It's hey, amazing. I hired Ed. You were good to your word. A couple was, years later, you called me, and the next thing you know, I'm sitting with Maria in your house in Old Bridge, and we're doing banging away, thing. banging away, banging away. And what was very funny is that I always wear jeans and t-shirts, and I never get dressed up. And I made Ed uh, the guy who liaised with Atlantic and all the big people, and I wanted to make a professional appearance so i gave ed a credit card sent him to macy's and made him buy a suit oh, i'll never forget i it. made him go down to new york every meeting in a suit and tie I'll never and, forget it. and he was so bitching at me oh we were because we were we couldn't have been more casual i mean johnny would you'd be in sweats half the time i'd you know t-shirt jeans out i'm the same way i never like to get dressed up never do and then when the merger with atlantic you were like ed you're gonna start having some meetings at atlantic on my behalf here's a credit card go buy a suit i was like what <laughs> He goes, you got to go in there and look in the part. I bought the suit. I did it. He looked the part. <laughs> he had Atlantic going good. Oh, man. Mark Schulman was the guy I dealt with the most. Oh. I remember him. He was the VP. If you could get Mark going, you got the key to the bucks. Yeah, yeah I remember that. The book is called Heavy Tales. It's out on October 29th. It is the the uh, subtitled the, the Metal, the Music, the Madness. And Johnny sent me the book a long time ago. Uh, well, a month or so ago. So I've actually read it a while ago, and it is phenomenal. And uh, you wrote in the book to my friend Ed Trunk, it's been a hoot. You're now the first again. Love you, bro. Very nice <laughs> of you. But meaning like, you know, the You're first, the first to get one the book. who ever got the book. I sent you my prototype. Yes. And by the way, there's great photos. There's a ton of great photos. 104 pictures. In the middle of the book, both color and black and white that, you know, everything from Anvil to Manowar to Venom to... Obviously, Metallica, Anthrax, Overkill, Testament, it goes on and on and on. Raven. Raven were a big part of the story They as were well. my biggest seller when we opened. It wasn't Metallica. It was Raven. All for One record? All for One record was huge. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Live at the Inferno, huge album. Yeah, I remember that. So, John, for you, writing this thing, because we could talk about all the bands individually right. for hours, and unfortunately, I got six minutes. But for you, writing this thing... How did it feel? I mean, you you would have to, just me flipping through it, me having been a part of it, me seeing the photos, such a sense of accomplishment, even for the small role I had in it. For you, this when you look back on all this, that you did this, what, what's your takeaway after having done the book? The takeaway is that I really walk around this world not believing that I did all this. You know, I don't feel like I discovered Metallica. I don't, you know, people tell me all these things. They say, Johnny, thank you. Johnny, you created the soundtrack for my life, all this stuff. But the reality is I uh, never felt 
much anything about it. Then I write the book, and I realize how much was done in such a short period of time. And to answer you, it blew my mind. Plus, it was a complete catharsis because I got so much out of my system in writing this book, especially when I talk about the dark days on Wall Street where I did time, you know, when I was at the bottom of the well. You know, I came forward and told everything. It's a very truthful book. Yeah, there's things as well as I know you, and as much as I worked directly with you for almost four years, there were things in the book, even around that time, that I was unaware of, which you were going through personally, your issues with substances, whatever you were battling at the time, you know, money problems, all of that. I mean, you lay it all out there, very honestly. Well, it's a real story. It's a kind of story that says that anything you want to achieve, if you believe in it with everything in your heart, there's a way to do it. And that's what happened to me and Marsha. You know, basically, we believe so much that nothing stood in our way. And believe me, when you read the book, man, we were fighting dragons all the way. Uh, King's X, of course, I forgot to mention a huge part of the story. I'll never forget when they came in for the barbecue at your house mm -hmm. and we had him there back in the back having the pool party. I'll never forget when that first demo came in, which was a VHS from what I remember. Uh, the story, the stories are really endless. But the other band that really looms large in your whole history is Anthrax. Oh, yeah. And I mean, with Metallica, that's they're right there because with Anthrax label management, everything. In those early years, and Anthrax really were, at that time, kids that were bothering you for attention, right? Trying oh. to get your attention, coming to your, whether, wherever you were with their tapes and just on you. They followed me to the ends of the earth. They showed up all the time, and they were always a nickel short with their tapes. They just weren't quite there. And then finally, they followed us to a IHOP. Marsha and I and the kids were going for breakfast just to be peaceful and warm up for a day's work, and there they were in the parking lot waiting for us. I don't know how they knew we were going to IHOP with their anthrax license plate, and Scott comes running into the IHOP, and he says, Johnny, sorry to bother you, but you got to hear this. It was produced by Ross the Boss. I think you're going to like it, and that was Soldiers of Metal. Mm. And Soldiers of Metal gave me the opportunity after seeing how good it was. To, if they could do that, what would they do live? I had no idea what they were going to do in the studio, it wasn't until I heard Metal Threshing Mad mixed by Carl Kennedy and done that I really realized that Anthrax have come full circle and they're a serious band to be contended with at that time. Yeah. When when you mentioned uh, that Raven was the biggest selling record during the independent years of Megaforce before right. the Atlantic merger, but um, why do you think Raven never went like the incredible bass that people forget. Raven co-headlined a tour with Metallica. They headlined. They it headlined. It wasn't co-headlined. Well, Kill Em All, All For One, Kill Em All Tour, whatever it was built. Right. But but then Raven stumbled. You know, I know a lot was made of the image with the them, all that. Do you think that really was their undoing? Well, in those days, you couldn't make a mistake. It would be like the worst thing you could do. And Raven and I and my partner at the time parted ways and they changed their music to a more commercial format. And look. And the look was right. quite intense. The video I thought was great for On and On, but it didn't have a positive reaction at all. People were saying like, what the hell is this? And it's unfortunate because today when you see Raven, you see the same Raven I saw that I loved when they first started. Yeah. 
You know, they just had a glitch. But that glitch really hurt them at a time where they were growing. And everybody found new heroes in Metallica and Anthrax, etc. And Raven also, uh, you have to have a special taste and understanding of what they're doing to really appreciate them. You have to have a caviar taste in metal because nothing sounds like Raven. There's nothing commercial about Raven. They're a total non-sellout band who deliver great music time and time again. But it's very unfortunate. I think they missed the train. Well, the same could be said about King's X not being a metal band but being a rock band. That people thought. I remember the years we were King's X. People thought they were platinum-selling band, and we'd have every artist and publicist call for free copies, but we couldn't actually sell the records. I walked into the president of Atlantic's records office, and he said to me, Johnny, why can't this record sell? Every person on every musician we have on our roster wants a King's X record and thinks it's the greatest thing since white bread. How come they all love it, but we can't sell any? And I honestly said, I I don't know. You know, we got uh, one of the singles of theirs to number two in the country. We had a top two video on MTV. And the most we ever sold with King's X was like 200,000 units, which sounds great for an independent. But we were part of Atlantic Records. Mm. And 200 was their ceiling. They sold much less than that on their prior albums. So it was very sad. We put them out with ACDC, and they didn't really relate. The audience didn't really relate right. to them. You know, you had to have, again, a, like Raven, That's King's X, you needed yeah. a, a special taste for King's X. Now they stand up beautifully. Their music is contemporary. And when you see them live, you could do nothing but love them. Yeah. So they're alive today, and I think they're doing better live than they ever did in their life. I got to end, unfortunately, but there's so much more that we didn't even touch on. Johnny managed ministry, and the stories about that are just endless and go on and on and on. But hey, we don't want to give it all away. Buy the book. That's what Johnny's Mm -hmm. here to do. Sell the book. October 29th, Heavy Tales from uh, John Zazula. Go to johnzazula.com to order your copy. Pre-order right now. Amazon or barnesandnoble.com as well. It's great to see you. You look great. I'm happy for you. I'm glad you got this story out. Thanks, I wish you all the luck in the world. We'll keep reminding people about it, too, over the next month. Wow. And thank you for coming in, man. Great to see you. My pleasure, and it's great to see you, Ed. Enjoyed that conversation with Johnny. He uh, was in great form that day and great to talk with him and great to see him. Needless to say, we have a lot of history together. And uh, check out his book, Heavy Tales, which is out there right now. I thank you guys for listening. I thanks to, uh, as always, Katie Irizarry for producing. And be sure to follow me on Twitter, where I'm most active, at Eddie Trunk. Instagram, at Eddie Trunk. Be sure to check out eddietrunk.com as well. Music News. Become a member of the site. You can hear my terrestrial show on demand. And be sure to listen to me every day on volume on Sirius XM Channel 106, live daily, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time, replaying every night, 10 to midnight Eastern, and on demand anytime you want on the Sirius XM app. That is where the interviews you hear on this podcast originated. I'll see you guys uh, next Thursday for another all-new episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, free as always at Apple Podcasts and Podcast One.
Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com.